We are continuing this series, Exile. If you've not been around, what is that about? It's about an event that happened 2,500 years ago. Uh, Jerusalem was invaded by the ruling power of the day, Babylon. Many thousands of people deported, including a man called Daniel and some of his friends. And we've been looking at what it means to embrace life as it is and live perhaps with some challenging circumstances as they did. We've been exploring different questions each weekend. And the question this weekend is, what is your heart or what is our heart condition? Now today we are looking a little closer at the king of Babylon. His name uh, is Nebuchadnezzar. Last weekend, uh, Pastor Dari referred to him as Neb. And I may do that because it will cut about two minutes off the sermon if I do that um, throughout. Now, you might think, well, why are we talking about this guy? Because surely this series is about Daniel, and it is. But Nebuchadnezzar is a key player in the Old Testament narrative. The prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, center a lot on him, as well as the narrative in Daniel. Before we dive into this, I need to give a little health warning, and I want you to hear this, please. This is a weird story. It's a strange story. It's a story of a guy, Nebuchadnezzar, who loses his mind for a period of time and then regains his sanity. Now, please hear this. The Christian church has not always done well with mental health issues. Um, Christians who've been depressed including myself historically. Not only have we felt bad, but we felt bad because we felt bad. And stories like this, if we take them out of context, can be weaponized and used unhelpfully. So I want to make this really clear. This is not a narrative about mental health, generally. It rather is about God's judgment, specifically. And if you've just understood what I've just said, just nod intelligently and say, jolly good, jolly good. Yeah, it sounded kind of cute, you saying that. That was really good. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream in this story. And he dreams about a tree, a beautiful tree that is cut down to a stump. Uh, Daniel is told to interpret it, but he's scared because Nebuchadnezzar's kind of wild, angry guy. He might just shoot the messenger, and the message is, Nebuchadnezzar, you're arrogant, and God is going to humble you. A year goes by, and here's what happens. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 29. Twelve months later, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of this world and gives them to anyone he chooses." That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. 
After time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the peoples of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Uh, it happened a few years ago. I told you about it before, but it perfectly fits um, this message. I, uh, together with some other friends and colleagues, used to co-lead a conference um, in England. It was a week of teaching and celebration. People came from across the UK, across Europe, to attend uh, that conference. It was very catalytic in the British church. And at its peak, we would have around 62,000 people attending the conference. It was an amazing experience. It was called Spring Harvest. And uh, I was involved with that for quite a few years. Um, one day, I was going into London. We have an apartment in England. Near our apartment is a tiny little Victorian railway station, which is unmanned with a ticket machine, which is invariably broken. And I got on the train, the ticket machine uh, faithfully was broken, so I didn't have a ticket. So I was possibly fearing execution because I am potentially, or technically traveling illegally. Well, here comes the conductor on the train gathering tickets, and he's not having a good day. In fact, I suggest he's not having a good year. He is barking at people, tickets, 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 no, no, nice to see you, no, have a nice day, nothing like that, just tickets, tickets, barking. And as he walked up to me, and I'm somewhat fearful because I don't have a ticket and I have to explain, I glanced at his lapel and noticed that there, was a, there were two badges, a fish, a Christian symbol, and a dove, a Christian symbol. And I thought to myself, self, this man is either a member of the international Pigeon Appreciation Society, or he is a Christian. So he comes up to me, and I said, I, I don't have a ticket, and I explained. He kind of, I'll print you a ticket, you know, kind of a bit aggressive. And, and just to make conversation, really, I, I, I said to him, I said, I noticed your badges. I noticed your badges. He said, yes. I said, are you, um, are you, um, you, are you a Christian? If you say it quick, it doesn't sound weird. Christian. He he said, yes. I mean, I, I, I didn't anticipate a hug, but it was a bit <laughs> blunt. He said, yes. I said, oh, good, good. Now, bear in mind, ladies and gentlemen, he does not know that I am a Christian. I am currently fishless. <laughs> and I'm not even wearing sandals. There is no indication <laughs> that I am a Christian. So I, I said to him, just more out of conversation, I said, do you go, do you go to a church around here? He said, yes. I said, oh, right. I said, how's it going? How's it going? He said, not good. Not good. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Why is that then? He said, well, he said, the problem is I am more advanced as a Christian than everybody else in my church. 
They just can't keep up with me. So I, I, I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll act a bit ignorant, a gift that comes rather naturally. So, <laughs> so I, I said, how do you become more like advanced in that then, that Christian thing? How do you become more advanced? He said, well, every year I attend a conference known as Spring Harvest. That's how I've become more advanced. I said, all right. I said, I do a bit of stuff with Spring Harvest myself. He said, do you? I said, yes! <laughs> it's kind of catching, you know. He said, he looked at me like we're about to share a deep secret. He said, let me tell you something. He said, this station where you just got on the train, he said, Jeff Lucas has an apartment near here. Jeff Lucas. I, I was so tempted. I wanted to say, yeah, that Jeff, don't you love him, you know? I said, well, that's me. That's me. He said, what? I said, that's me. Jeff Lucas is on the credit card. There's a hint. He said, no, you're not. And at first I thought, he may be right. He's more advanced, isn't he? he... <laughs> and as he wandered on down the carriage, more advanced than everybody in his church, I thought, dear God, don't let me become like that. I, I mean, I don't know. We're on the internet. He, he may be watching. Greetings, sir. Proud and arrogant. As we turn to the story of this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, literally the most powerful man in the world at the time. Look at how Daniel chapter 2 refers to him. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. Wow. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over all. Ezekiel chapter 26 refers to this man as king of kings again. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, he took upon himself the title of Nebuchadnezzar because in that, in that culture, Nebuchadnezzar means raw power. Nebuchadnezzar, this man in Daniel's day, had thousands of slaves at his beck and call. He reigned for 43 years. He was rich. He just built a fabulous palace. He had a son that he was about to transfer his power to. He was thinking about retirement. Everything was sweet. And then he gets this dream. And what we see here is that power can create pride and arrogance. And this might seem like a bit of a distant story, 2,500 years old, but as I think about the gentleman on the railway train, I realize actually that Christians can be very susceptible to pride and arrogance. Pride that's even fueled by their own spirituality. More about that later. So what do we learn about God. If you're following in the bulletin, first of all, we see in this story God revealed. God revealed patient and persistent. He's patient 
and persistent. Now, this week I went to an event at CSU. I've lived here for 17 years. I've never been on the campus before this week. It is amazing. It is astonishing. A city within a city. But I was running a bit late, and um, um, I, I got the, the, the current lady in my life, um, her name's Siri. Uh, she, would you pray for her? She's having a bit of a rough time. You know. And um, she, she misled me. She misled me. And I'm actually having a com- I'm, t- I'm actually telling her off, you know. By the way, for anybody who's worried, Siri is a voice inside a phone, okay? Some of you were looking a little alarmed just then. Anyway, I'm late for this thing, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit flustered, and uh, I just want to get in there. And I parked my car, but I didn't take note of where I'd parked the car. How many know there are lots of parking spaces on the campus of CSU? So I come out of there as a nice event, and I come out of the building the wrong way. I got turned around. So I'm now heading in completely the wrong direction, and 25 minutes later, I am still looking for my car. I'm thinking about phoning a friend. I'm thinking about calling an Uber to get me home. I am praying a prayer you pray when you can't find your car. Oh, God, show me the car. <laughs> Finally, I found it with much rejoicing. Why did that happen? It happened because I was impatient. Just got to get in there. Just got to get in there. When you look at the God of Daniel's story, he's patient. He's patient. In fact, his purposes span over 500 years. Dig in a little bit with me here. In Daniel chapter 2, there's strange words there about the rock that struck the statue becoming a huge mountain and filling the whole earth. What's that about? It's about Jesus. It's about a coming kingdom that would come 600 years later in the coming of Christ to the earth. But it's 600 years later. And then in Luke 20, Jesus spoke about that and about himself. He said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is pulling together the words from Daniel. Preaching Jesus in Acts chapter 4, we read the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, it talks about Jesus who is the living stone. Why did I pull all of that out? Because I want you to see that as one African theologian describes him, the three mile an hour God who works patiently was working his purposes out here over a 600-year period. He's not impatient. He is patient and persistent. And he was patient with Nebuchadnezzar. Dive in again with me here. Nebuchadnezzar saw the brilliance of Daniel's God through Daniel and his friends. Chapter 1, look at this. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. So this guy saw God in the lives of those men. And so in Daniel chapter 2, he's had this dream, actually about the coming of Jesus. 
The king said to Daniel, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries. And then Daniel chapter 3, you know that story, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace. And it's Nebuchadnezzar who sees a fourth man in the furnace. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Some commentators say an angel, some say Jesus. But here's the point. Gradually, patiently, persistently, God was trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Has he been doing that with me, with you? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus right now. And you've been having these weird dreams. Well, there's that Christian at work who at first you found irritating, but they, they've just drawn alongside you and seem to have the, the right thing to say at the, the right time. Or, or, may, or maybe there's been that string of coincidences. You like to call them coincidences. And Nebuchadnezzar's story says you can even see a, a supernatural being in a furnace and still write it off. Has God been trying to nudge and get attention. Maybe that's true for us as followers of Jesus. God's been nudging patiently, persistently, and perhaps it's time to respond. Secondly, humanity is revealed here. Humanity is revealed. There's wavering faith. You see, ladies and gentlemen, one minute Nebuchadnezzar's a believer, the next minute he's not. So, in chapter 2, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But in chapter 3, he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? One minute, faith. The next minute, well, the next chapter, unbelief. Now, let's have a bit of a chat about this. This is not doubt. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. I've stood in the ruins of Chorazim in the Galilee in Israel, one of our trips that we've taken. It's an abandoned city, deserted because Jesus prophesied it would be. He did many miracles there, but because of their unbelief, judgment came. Unbelief is a stubborn refusal to have faith in God despite overwhelming evidence. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. That's not the same as doubt. Now, let me be a bit vulnerable. I occasionally have doubt flashes. Anybody else here ever occasionally get doubt? Just raise, raise your hand. 22 of you. <laughs> Just raise your hand if you like to lie in church when asked an awkward question. <laughs> Just raise your hand if you never raise your hand, whatever the question. I have doubt flashes, it's, and it's happened at the most inappropriate times. At Spring Harvest one time, 5,000 people in a gathering. I'm walking to the pulpit, and I suddenly thought, I hope there's a God. I've been here for four weeks at this conference. If I sing another Christian song, I'm going to go mad. I hope there's a God. 
Sometimes Christianity can seem, humanly speaking, listen carefully, humanly implausible. Happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was trying to pray about something, and the absurdity of prayer hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. I thought, how can someone listen to a billion people all mumbling away about their stuff? When I held the ashes of my mother in my hand and affirmed that one day in resurrection there will be a reunion, that is logically, humanly impossible. And I had a doubt, a flash of doubt. I don't, I don't lose my faith, I just mislay it. Now here's the really awkward thing, because I had another one this morning. And I don't want to tell you this. I'm going to go home today and eat something appalling. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to have what Brené Brown calls a, uh, a vulnerability hangover. <laughs> Happened this morning, 7.30 this morning. I'm on Facebook searching for, to see what my friends were having for breakfast. And <laughs> while I'm on there, I see a video of three Christian leaders, one of them very well known, I'm not going to name him because I won't sink to what he did, utterly ridiculing and condemning all women in Christian ministry and all women preachers. And they were sneering and mocking and they named a particular lady and the crowd were like a a bunch of baying spectators at the gladiatorial games. They're clapping and cheering, yeah, get them. And I looked at this because I am completely committed to the full release of all in ministry, regardless of their gender. And I looked at this, and for a moment, I had a doubt flash. And I thought, dear God, I, I don't want to be part of that. Now, I mean, I got my faith back two minutes later, and currently I'm good. Why do I tell you that? It's because sometimes doubts can come and we can become intimidated by them. Don't be intimidated. One day you're going to see Jesus, if you're a follower of his, one day you will see Jesus face to face and you won't have any doubts. But in the meantime, you don't see him face to face. So if you occasionally doubt, it doesn't make you a bad Christian. It just means you don't happen to be dead yet. Getteth over it. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar wavers. Don't be paralyzed by doubt. Somebody sent me this quote just before the first service this morning, so I can't put it on the screen. It's a famous quote from Madeleine Lengel. Those who believe, they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, Believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. I'm looking around here. We're a bunch of busted people in repair. We don't get it right all the time. I love what former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said. He said, a human being is holy not because he or she triumphs by willpower over chaos and guilt and leads a flawless life, but because the life shows the victory of God's faithfulness in the midst of disorder and imperfection. The church is holy, not because it's a gathering of the good and the well behaved, but because it speaks of the triumph of grace in the coming together of strangers and sinners who miraculously trust one another enough to join in common repentance and common praise. Humanly speaking, holiness is always like this. God's endurance in the middle of our refusal of him 
this capacity to meet every refusal with the gift of himself. Don't be paralyzed by your own incompleteness or by doubt when it strikes. Number three. Number three, a snare revealed. A snare revealed. Pride comes before virtually every fall. In his great book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes pride as the great sin, but it's easy to fall into it. Uh, Boxing promoter Don King. I want that hair. He said, I never cease to amaze my own self, and I say that humbly. (laughs) Winston Churchill, uh, he said, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glow worm. (laughs) Pride. Steve Jobs, knowing that he had a terminal disease, Steve Jobs of Apple fame, He said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. It was C.S. Lewis who said that he'd never heard a Christian publicly confess to pride. But it's a danger. The Pharisees were ruined by their fasting and prayer. They prayed for three hours a day, and they became proud about it. I remember years ago when I was in a church in Oregon, living there, we started a men's early morning prayer meeting. The first week, not many people showed up, and the leader said, not many have shown up, but our guys work really hard. Let's pray for them. God bless them today. The next week, we had the meeting, and not many people showed up. The leader said, where are all those guys? What's the matter with them? Don't they believe in the power of prayer? The next week we had another one. Not many people showed up. He said, I'm sick and tired of the people, these guys in our church. They don't take responsibility. They're just not as deep as we are. Uh, The weeks went on and resentment and arrogance crept into his soul. We Christians can have... Subtle snares when it comes to pride. Well, the last thing is this. Number four, lessons for us. Stay humble and stay teachable. Meister Eckhart, Christian mystic and theologian, said, be willing to be a beginner every single morning. Be willing to learn um, the lessons of life. Are we, as we navigate through life, Are we actually taking note of things and learning from them? Matt's back and uh, probably wants to play something right now, but not not now, Matt, not now. (laughs) Step away from the keys, sir. (laughs) Shared this before, but I woke up one morning at our home here and someone was trying to break into our house early in the morning, slam against the windows, pummeling the window. Case fast asleep, snoring like a rhino. (laughs) Who said that? I don't know. And uh, bam, 
She woke up. I said, honey, I think someone's trying to break in the house. And I shouldn't say this publicly probably, but we, we don't have a gun. We don't own a gun. I, I tried to buy a gun once, and I went to the store, and it was a Timberline guy at the store serving. I said, I want a gun. He said, Pastor Jeff, I've heard your stories. He said, I, I beg you, I beg you, don't buy a gun, no, don't buy a gun. So my strategy if someone tries to break into our home is to run around the house naked screaming, that'll get them. Did I just say that? You know, sometimes the thought's in your mind and you can bleh, bleh, bleh. So I said to Kay, I said, honey, why don't you go and investigate? I'll pray. I'll just. <laughs> no, I, I got out of bed and I wandered over and I, I couldn't see anybody. And then suddenly, bam, hit the window. What was that? Couldn't see anything. So I kept waiting and another two minutes, bam, it's a bird. Maybe it happens at your house. And here's what happens. They, they, they fly up to the window and they see their own reflection and they think that there's a naughty bird. There's an enemy bird. And they go, look at that, look at that. And they get like a corrugated beak. And they pop an Advil. And then two minutes later, they do the same thing again. Look at that, look at that. And as I watch it, look at that, look at that. I watched this. I went out onto the deck. I said, look. Bird brain, it's you. I can see it in your eyes, Timberline family. You're going, right, we've got it, thank you. Move on. We want lunch eventually. Please, Pastor Jeff, move on. No. Because you're bored with me doing this for 42 seconds. Imagine living like... Now in slow motion. <laughs> I want you to laugh and I want you to cry. Because imagine living life in the same destructive patterns. Well, we never learn, we never wake up to the destructive pattern that we're in. Thanks, Matt. Maybe, maybe today it's time to stop headbutting plate glass and wounding our own hearts. 
Maybe today's the day to become a follower of Jesus if you're not a Christian. Today is the day to, to stop saying, well, Daddy told me to stand on my own two feet. You won't find that in the Bible. You were designed to live in a relationship of love through Christ. Maybe it's time to break the pattern. Maybe it's time, fellow believers, to recognize destructive trends. Well, as I wrap this up and we go to prayer, I started this message by telling you that Nebuchadnezzar was known in Daniel and Ezekiel as king of kings. Let me tell you about another king of kings. His name is Jesus. He's the king of kings. I could really use an amen on that one. You know, don't often ask for the amen. I did just then, and I'm going to go for it again. He is the king of kings. Amen. Revelation 19. On his robe and his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But that King of Kings, we also read of him in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself. Majestic King who incarnated himself into our world. So let's ask the question, how's our hearts? Has pride crept in and is tainting our spirituality? Have we been paralyzed because occasionally we doubt and we, some of us when we doubt we think, maybe I'm not even a Christian and we get paralyzed. We don't need to be intimidated when doubts strike. Are we teachable? Are we learning the lessons of life? What is our heart condition? Let's pray together. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are the servant king who came down and stooped to us to lift us up. You save us from becoming headstrong, arrogant, flushed with our own proficiency. Keep us teachable. I pray, Holy Spirit, that where destructive patterns have become rooted in our lives, and we go round and round and round. And the same old stuff, help us to, with prayer, with friendship, perhaps with professional help, to know freedom. And may we have pliable hearts, Lord, as lifelong learners, always traveling, never feeling like we've arrived, willing to be wrong. Before I end this prayer, I want to just say, if you're not currently a follower of Jesus and you want to change that, now is a moment. It's 10.59 on a Sunday morning in Colorado. 
and I'm not just suggesting you ask God for his help or just to generally bless you. I'm inviting you to turn your life over to him. Ask him to take charge, to forgive you, to be your king, king of kings, your king. Everything's been done at the cross in his resurrection, beaten death. This king of kings, this Jesus. This can be the junction moment that changes the rest of forever. Our prayer team will be here at the end here. They'd love to talk with you, give you some resources to help you. But just take a moment. Whisper, help Lord, save me. So we give you thanks, Lord. You know our hearts. Help us to know our hearts. We agree together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.